Okay, so we want to take a minute and thank the sponsors that have helped us get this off the ground. So the initial sponsors that you're hearing from this show, these are people who believe in us. And I, I believe these are people who believe in themselves and that believe in the services that they're providing the operators and providing this industry. And, and we just want to thank them for the support and thank them for what they do day to day. Right, Skips? Oh, yeah. I mean, for us, you know, starting out brick by brick and just having that initial push, I mean, from those guys was is awesome. And for them believing in this and this image and this goal that we have, you know, and we hadn't even put a product out and these guys were already contacting us. So we really, really want to extend our deepest gratitude for that. 100%. P-Dog? Thank you, guys. Diversified mud logging. Operating in challenging geological environments requires more geological data. Gathering real rock data in a low-cost environment is a challenge, too. Diversified well logging's hybrid mud logging delivers quantitative rock data in real time at competitive cost. Combined with mass-spec gas data, gamma ray, and XRF geosteering, high-resolution sampling with the automated remote mud logger, DWL surface measurement while drilling is bridging the gap between seismic and gamma ray logs. Contact us at info at dwl-usa.com or call Paul Burns at 432-528-1871. At ESG, we know that microseismic event clouds overestimate the stimulated reservoir volume. With FRACMAP Clarity, we're cutting through the clouds of microseismic data to differentiate between wet versus dry fractures, better understand the well interaction, and extract the information you need to make important decisions about your completions. Speak to us about validating your reservoir models with microseismic calibrated rate transient analysis. For more information, visit ESGSolutions.com. Canamera Coring is focused on making coring great again. Canamera revolutionized the coring industry forever with consistent high core quality and proven success all over the Permian Basin. From their slim hole world coring record in the Delaware to their 510 foot record run in the Midland Basin, Canamera's proven JMS jam mitigation system has consistently delivered high quality core, longer run lengths, and reduced operational costs. If you want long barrel, short barrel, wireline retrieved, oriented, or underbalanced coring, Discover Canamera Coring's technology, www.canamericoring.com, or find your local representative at sales at canamericoring.com. Sizeware is a different kind of geoscience technology company. Software isn't about a product. It's about an experience, and we want you to have a great experience with us. We design software for the upstream energy industry and work with our users to ensure we're addressing their real workflows and challenges. Our suite of products include seismic interpretation, geologic interpretation, and field development. Our affordable leasing model includes all upgrades, maintenance, and support from our exceptional team of geoscientists, because we don't think you should have to pay extra for that. It should be an expectation. For more information, visit our website at sizeware.com. That's S-E-I-S-W-A-R-E.com. The views, opinions, and experiences stated in this podcast do not represent the official views of Diamondback Energy, but are solely the personal views, opinions, and experiences of the speaker and the hosts. Three, two, one. Let's go! I am the host of the Permian Basin Experience Podcast, Troy Tittlemeyer, my co-host, Matt the Skip Scipione. Back for round two with Mr. Cannon. We're really pumped about this. We kind of got into a little bit of banter about, you know, innovation. We got really deep into this presentation. And, of course, across the way on the technical board, 
Mr. P Dog. <laughs> Sup. <laughs> All right, he's clearly excited. Uh Skips, we gotta we gotta say it, man. You you were live mm. with Metallica on Saturday night. You were I mean, I followed your snaps. I don't know who else does, but everybody should. And you were I mean, he was sweating on you. Dude, it was life changing. Unbelievable. Was, the, the issue is, right, the concert was so good that every other concert that I go to at this point in my life is just gonna be <laughs> You know, it's it's not going to be not live up to expectation. It's Dude. James Hetfield. I'm breathing the same air as him. Dude, it's it was it was a magical moment. Magical it looked moment amazing. Time. It looked amazing. Right up in Lubbock, easy drive in the limo. Easy drive. Uh, that was pretty solid e- package. Easy, you got going. Yeah, it was. It was a good night. It was a good night. <laughs> Follow skips at uh, at Snapchat. Okay, we have Don't on follow. Dave Cannon too. <laughs> we have now a new introduction because. He is now the senior vice president, comma, which means of senior vice president of geoscience and technology at Diamondback. I mean, that is a huge title, and he is on the show with us right now. Dave Cannon, sir, welcome. Thank you for having me again. This is this is fun the first time, and I decided, hey, let's do it again. We appreciate it, man. We appreciate it. Okay, so... What did we, uh, we pulled up something on LinkedIn earlier today, just to, before we get into the presentation and just kind of chewing on some things. Um, you had a post about brittleness and that post. 2016. That was, that was a 2016 post? 2016. I should have looked into that. Uh, P-Dog sent it over. And what I noticed was how much commentary and how many people were just like, oh my gosh, thank there it is. Look at that image. Did you go out and find that? Yeah, I, and and look, I even copyrighted it correctly. <laughs> the Walt Disney Company yeah. right there. Well done. It's, it's the classic. It's Always a trap. Always give credit. Where is, it, is it from too. Star Trek or where's it from? Star Wars. Star, Star, Star Wars. Oh. You're, you're a tech I'm not really advisor? good in my... You've officially officially offended Dave I Cannon. should leave. <laughs> <laughs> you are disqualified. <laughs> Um, and, and I didn't go and I didn't read every line of this, uh, this post, but, uh, I think there's 27 different ways you can calculate brittleness. Yeah. I, honestly, brittleness to me is a misnomer, right? It, it's something that was derived as a qualifier, a qua- a qualitative indication of how a rock fails in a compressive sense. What are we doing? We're breaking rock in intention. We're trying to initiate mode one failure. How can a qualitative measure from a compressive strength test have any indication of, of ease of fracturing in rock? So what we have to do is go back to the basics of linear elastic fracture mechanics and understand what are the true drivers that bring about the kind of, of interaction with the subsurface that we want to interact with. So that's why I go into detail here talking about something that's called fracture toughness, right? I mean, this, this stuff has been around for decades and fracture toughness can actually be quantitatively measured in a laboratory. You know, this is something that can be done and not a lot of focus is put on it just purely because, well, fracture toughness measurements are pretty expensive, right? So they have likely a high value driver where you really have to extract a lot of information out of that test in order to make the cost worthwhile. So, you know, to me though, if you make key measurements of fracture toughness, 
based back upon your facies, based back upon your geomechanical stratigraphy, if you will, when you split up your your formations of, of interest into geomechanical units. Mm. Once you do that, you can take key measurements within each one of those geomechanical units and start to look at what your true fracture toughness is in the rock. And that's going to be a lot more informative on how you fail rock in a, tensiles, in a tensile regime than you would in a compressive regime. Wow. So that's, I think, a better measure, and that's what I kind of go into here in a little bit detail. Makes sense. So can I say in 2016, was it the first time a geoscientist stepped up and said, engineers, oh, no, no, no. stop it? No, 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 no. <laughs> We've been crying from the woods for decades, right? So <laughs> From the woods. <laughs> it, it, it's It's... I think what brittleness came from was it was easy, mm. right? It was something that was derived from measurements that you could acquire relatively inexpensively Bunch in terms of, of core analysis. Sure. And you yeah. can then also look at it in terms of log analysis. You can measure Young's modulus and Poisson ratio from a log. Mm -hmm. It's a dynamic measurement. It's not a static measurement, which is really truly what you should be getting out of the rock. But to me, it's if, if, if you're not getting at the true answer in terms of the loading mechanism you're applying to the rock, okay, then you're just fooling yourself. And that, to me, I think is what brittleness tends to lead you down the road to is essentially a, a misrepresentation of the rock that you're interacting with. And you can end up making very large business decisions based upon incomplete information. And that's not what I'm in the business of doing. <laughs> <laughs> well said, sir. That was interesting. It was an interesting comment about this static. And, and then you followed it up with this understanding of, of the load that's on the rock. Mm -hmm. And that, that makes sense. However, the dynamic stresses relative to the faulting in the area could be very, very tricky too. Dynamic versus static is just purely in terms of how you're sampling the rock, right? So a static measurement is based upon the actual failure of the rock, whereas right. a dynamic measurement is something that you're um, initiating through some kind of ultrasonic pulse, right? You're not actually failing the rock. Right. You're just sampling the dynamic parameters That's of right. that rock without failing it. That's so right, that's which, what I mean between static and dynamic. Um, you can make correlations between static and dynamic measurements for Young's modulus. A lot of people do it. Uh, it tends to be formation-specific, location-specific. Mm -hmm. So if you go into the literature, there's like 80 different ways of, oh, yeah. of relating static and, and dynamic Young's modulus. If you look at Poisson ratio, good luck. There, there's <laughs> very little... Uh, what I would consider solid interaction between, uh, in terms of a, a correlation between static and dynamic measurements of Poisson ratio. Um, so mm. it, it's tough. And, you know, I think if we just simplify the process a little bit more and think about, you know, how we're actually interacting and how we're actually failing this rock, it gets us to it gets us a, down a path where we can start being more critical about how we're measuring the mm. values out of the rock and get us better information to make more informed decisions. Okay. I'm following that logic for sure. Now, uh, P-Dog, as a geophysicist, I was in conversation with Dr. Marfort one time, and I said, is our 3D seismic capturing a static or dynamic. Dynamic. That's right, which was very, very interesting. So now 
theoretically, you can map the the stress dynamic changes caused by these deep seated faults or any faults around your wellbore near your wellbore what it's doing what mother nature is really doing to the rock from that fault you can actually capture that in, in geophysics you will be able to see differences in anisotropy in the stress mm-hmm. field um, but the amount of magnitude change you have in stress close to some of these fault systems within a more relaxed setting they're going to be so small that you probably won't Got be it. able to see mm-hmm. a lot of the a lot of the difference uh, it's more of that anisotropy is what we're looking for um, and that's in the in the, the stress field as we get close to structure so Dave Cannon Lessons 101. We're going to have episodes just of that yeah. maybe in the future. That was awesome, man. Well, the, the post obviously made sound, it made serious waves to the industry. There was a bunch of commentary. A lot of people, I think everybody that I saw, and I think I read every, every one of the comments at least, they were all like, thank you really at the end of their comments. Like, okay, this is getting to the next level. Yeah, this settled a debate that we were having. Like, I'm yeah, glad that's what it I'm felt sure. like. Yeah. So it was awesome, man. I, I, I commend you. And I say thank you for just doing that. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I think it's a, you know, this this isn't something that was a closely held secret, something that didn't give someone a competitive advantage, right? I mean, we're looking at this scientifically. Mm-hmm. We're looking at this in terms of a basic understanding of the principles that we use when we assess the subsurface. So to me, to go out there and say that, I'm not giving away Diamondback secrets by doing what I did. I'm basically stating an opinion of, hey, this is how we should be assessing these rocks. You know, because to me, the way I treat essentially the, the, the scientific community around this industry is that I'm a firm believer in rising tides lift all boats, right? Mm, so if I can do something, if I can share something that will make a neighbor, you know, more successful in the mm-hmm. way that they assess their subsurface or the way they extract out more resource from from the subsurface, that's better for me too because guess what? I'm his neighbor. Yep. So when someone says, oh, man, QEP or or – pick a, a company your choice is just knocking it out of the park. Oh, look who's right next next door to them is Diamondback. They have acreage that's very close, mm-hmm. and they'll probably read through that and say, hey, you know, Diamondback has a potential upside target here or right. can extract more out of the targets that they have. Yeah. You know, so it's that kind of – I think that's that kind of, of, of uh, mentality, I think, that will get us further along the road than really kind of looking at the industry as a, a row of fences, mm-hmm. right? Love it, man. Instead of fences, we should just have hedges, right, where we can kind of uh, – a few little breaks along the way where yeah. we can walk through That's and right. talk to our neighbors mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So. Great analogy. Yeah. Say, howdy, how's your day, man? <laughs> I'm going to take it one step further and say – I mean, look at 2016 and look at today. Diamondback has a VP of geoscience that's going to go out there and Senior. say – senior VP of geoscience and technology that's going to go out there and say, here's my thoughts on this. Uh, and I'm not afraid to share it because we're actually doing stuff to move the needle. We're actually doing stuff that makes a difference. And our results showed it 2016. I said it 2018, uh, kind of sitting up at the top of the hill, like, come on guys, let's, uh, let's do what diamondbacks doing. Like we say internally, get on the rocket ship. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. We're going to have to change the name. 
Diamondback and rocket ship. How could you get that in the same Diamondback and rocket ship? I'm gonna think about that yeah. one. <laughs> All right, are you ready for this presentation? Because I, I don't I know if the world is. The world is about to be hit with some serious stuff. It's the foundation of our show, man. I get very, very excited. I don't know if you could tell, uh, you, but you do get excited, right? <laughs> but this, this is it. This is this is literally where are we going from here, and are we gonna make it? Right. And, you know, to, to lead up to this presentation, I think what it really focuses on is staying relevant in terms of a global understanding of where our energy comes from. Um, there are things that we can do to prevent what happened to industries such as the coal industry. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that everybody argues is that the coal industry, oh, the coal industry was killed by regulations. Oh, the coal industry was killed by the environmentalists. Oh, the coal industry was killed by the government. No, the coal industry killed the coal industry because they refused to innovate. They yeah. said, we're on top. We're going to stay here forever. No one else can beat us in terms of cost to capture for energy creation. And they just stagnated. And when they stagnated, that allowed someone else to come in and take their market share and eventually come to a point where you're starting to see the death of the coal industry now. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure that our industry doesn't follow that same path. Likewise. So, you know, not only, you know, personally for me, you know, I'm relatively young. I just celebrated my 40th birthday. Hey, congratulations, hey. man. Yeah, I didn't get invited to the Vegas trip. There is no Did Vegas. I miss that invite? <laughs> no, it's just a <laughs> close little uh, close little party with the kiddos. So, man, um, that's pretty cool. But, uh, you know, I still have a long runway in front of me. And, and I want to see this industry continue to thrive even when I'm in my 60s. The right? world demands it. Yep. So, the world demands it, man. But to me, it's also a, a matter of, of demand. As demand continues to increase, as more and more people continue to populate this world, we need to provide them something. Something right. that mm -hmm. won't completely and totally destroy the economic system this world you know, revolves on. Um, so that, that to me is what really predicates a lot of this is understanding mm. what are the key things we need to make sure we're doing to not fall into the trap that the coal industry did. Wow. Because I think there's a perfect example right there right. of mm -hmm. where stagnation and, and being a laggard, if you will, will destroy an industry. If I was slightly distant, more distant than I am now from this industry and I looked at this presentation and saw those growth curves, I would argue that, what are you talking about? I mean, we're, we can put a bunch of well bores in the ground. We can, all it's going to take is give us $100 per barrel and we'll give you as much energy as you want. I mean, that's kind of the, I mean, that, that I think is an argument. I don't think it's, it's the argument, but I think it is a argument. It is, but at the same time, in order for an industry like us to continue to thrive and continue to be here, we have to be economically solvent, correct? Mm -hmm. 100%. So we can't just continue to drill ourselves into oblivion because if we just put more well bores into the ground, we're going, the costs aren't going to go down right. if we drill more, right? You're just going to multiply that by more well bores. And the resource you're extracting is less with every every well as you go. 
And, you know, if you say just for argument's sake, if you have eight wells per section in some nominal resource that that delivers a 10 or 15 percent rate of return or 15 percent recovery factor. Sorry mm-hmm. about that. Um, you're uh, and if you stick 16 in there, you're going to get a higher recovery factor. But it's going to be at the detriment of your well economics. Right. Mm-hmm. You're going to see lower rates of return. You're going to see lower MPV. And for an industry like ours that essentially thrives in a capitalistic system, that's going to kill us. Not okay. Yeah. So and if I you mean, want us to deliver resource to where it's needed most, we have to do it in such a way that makes our industry continue to be solvent into the future. I believe you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but it, it's something that we're I'm actually glad we're, we're we're even seeing nowadays. I mean, these companies they're beginning to downspace and downspace and downspace, and like you were saying, this interpretation and this uh, ability to really predict the reservoir has kind of gone out the window, and it's turned into more of a mining operation at the end of the day. It has. So it's just, hey, how many rigs can we get out here, and how many wells can we get done by the end of the year? There's, That's, I think, there's a fine balance, right? There's a balance between reservoir assessment, reservoir interpretation, and a manufacturing mode. Mm -hmm. I think they can coexist, but it's a matter of being able to not take one way completely, Mm -hmm. right? So there's a time and a place for what, you know, a lot of the engineers in our industry call science projects. And the way they spit out the word science is like a four-letter word, right? Um, But... uh, (laughs) There, there's a time and a place for that, especially when it's early in an assessment phase, right? That's when it has its most value because you're deciding at that point in an appraisal sense to understand where am I going to put this well bore? Where am I going to drill in this 3,000 feet of rock that's going to deliver me the best rate of return, right? Once you have gotten to a point where you feel comfortable with that calculus, then you can start to say, okay, how do I develop this efficiently? in a way that's gonna return the most value to either, you know, my funders or Mm -hmm. my shareholders, but also at the same time, extract the most out of the rock that we can to deliver our promise to the rest of the world that we're gonna deliver a a low cost form of energy. Mm -hmm. So I think those two things can coexist. It's just a matter of making sure that we keep ourselves honest on the subsurface side and also on the engineering side. Mm -hmm. The engineering side, they really want to make the factory. They want to make the widgets. They want to get out there and say, we need to have repetitive operations because that drives the most efficiency on Mm -hmm. my end. That's great. But there's caveats to that. There's nuance, right? I mean, you still need to... I mean, the end goal is for optimization. Right. That, that, that's it at the end of the day. You still want to be able to extract the most, but, you know, we have to keep in mind the efficiency. Right. So that's... I, I, there's a happy medium. Yeah. And some companies are attaining that. Uh, some companies aren't. Um, just it is the way it is. Some people make strategic decisions that, with the information that's presented to them, it's what they do. Mm-hmm. But I think at the ultimate, the most successful companies are going to balance those two ways of, of thinking of the subsurface at the end of the day. I'm going to try to recage this thing right now from DC one to getting into your presentation. We just sure. got a solid introduction. I mean, we talked about several different things. 
I would say our first episode with you describes one of the best, if not the best, and I'm not here to just stroke your ego by any means, but if I think you are one of the best and arguably the best geoscientists running a multi-billion dollar company and helping them extract hydrocarbons out of the ground in the most effective and efficient and, and lucrative way. So with all that being said, and the end of that introduction, which perfectly segues us into your presentation, the floor is yours. The floor is mine. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. So one of the things that I I really like in our industry too, especially here in the Permian Basin, I, I always trying to find corollaries, right? And I always trying to find a model to fit something in. Um, and one of the things I really wanted to see as an industry as a whole is how can we avoid that trap of falling into the same thing that the coal industry fell into, right? So how can we fit an industry in terms of a adaptation or an innovation um, pathway to remain relevant in the global energy scheme, right? How can we remain relevant in that? So one of the things that I really started looking for was a model of how you would adapt technology and how it would be adapted within a social group. And I think, you know, Everett Rogers, back in 1962, um, came out with a, a, uh, a first edition called The Fusion of Innovations. Um, it's a brilliant read. Uh, I, I think I encourage anybody to read it. Uh, it's a textbook, so it's, it's, it's dry. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, I think he builds a very good case for this diffusion theory to essentially be applied not just to like our industry the way I'm going to apply it here, but to anything, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's talking about how ideas filter through a social group. So this could be brought into the political realm. This could be brought into just a social realm, how ideas go through a social group like a neighborhood or a this state podcast. or, sure, this podcast. <laughs> um, and one of the things that, that he really brought forward was there's a specific path and there's specific stakeholders within the technology adaptation. And he kind of elegantly puts these in this kind of bell curve distribution, right? Where you have the very, very first innovators, which is what he calls them, the innovators. Those are the first ones through the wall, right? Those are the ones that are getting the bloody noses. Those are the ones a lot of people say the pioneers take the arrows, right? So that's essentially where those people reside. They're the, they're the ones that are game changers. Um, and this bell curve we're looking at, the percentages break down pretty much the same across any platform, 2.5% innovators. Yeah, yeah roughly. Um, he's, he, he goes into more proof of that concept in, cool. in the read. Um, but for me, just looking at an industry as, as, as a whole, it seems to hold up you know, in terms of the innovators, what I see here in the Permian. Um, then as you move through the innovators, you get to a group of people called the early adopters. These are the people that look at the innovators and say, hey, that's a cool idea. I'm going to go do that myself. Diamondback. Mm -hmm. But we can do better, right? <laughs> so they build upon a lot of the mistakes that were made by the innovators, and they make the innovation better, right? They, they, they mold it. They, they, they overhaul it. They look at it and tear it apart and rebuild it again and make it better. Right. Mm -hmm. These are the ones these are the ones that as you can see, 
in the in the curve itself, you really start to see more and more pickup in terms of adaptation of that technology. But there's a critical point, and that's between the early adopters and the early majority. The early majority are the ones that say, okay, this is a viable thing. Let's go jump in and do this because mm -hmm. it's economically viable, right? For our industry, that's the social proof. Our social proof for an oil and gas company is that does that concept make money, right? Is it economically viable for me to go out there and spend $8 million on a well to go capture that resource? So essentially, that, that point in between the early adopters and the early majority is called the chasm. That's where you have to provide that social proof. For a lot of industries, that's tough. You know, that, that's a tough, tough place for a lot of industries and a lot of technology and a lot of innovation languages. Perfect example of that is electric vehicles. Electric vehicles have been around forever, right? I mean, early concepts of electric vehicles have been around since the 70s. So, you know, Elon Musk and, and Tesla, they're not the innovators. They're the early majority, mm -hmm. right? They're the mm -hmm. ones that said, hey, I can take that technology and make it better. And he did. That's I mean, right. they're, mm -hmm. they're wonderful cars, right? I mean, they have, they have the range of a vehicle that fits American lifestyles, right? They're not this little bug-looking thing that can only go like 30 miles. Um, with no radio. With no radio. And <laughs> you turn on the AC, it's now 20 go. miles. Yeah, done. exactly. Yeah. Um, so he built a car, an electric vehicle, that was more fit for purpose for the American public. But his chasm is just like our chasm. It's the social proof of will someone want to buy it? Is mm -hmm. it economically viable for a family of four that's squarely within the middle class of the United States of America to buy a $75,000 vehicle? They can't. They're going to go out and buy a $28,000 Toyota Camry. Right. So his social proof, they've not been able to do it. Now they've come out with the Model 3, which is less expensive, starts at 35,000. They're getting better. Right. But mm -hmm. there's obviously problems with the scale up in terms of building out those cars because they oh, got yeah. a huge, massive amount of orders. Right. Yep. They can't keep up with them. Yep. So that's kind of a Tesla problem. But because that technology is starting to move, it's reacting to the chasm. Right, it's reacting to the social proof. It's saying, "All right, what do we have to do to get over the chasm?" They know that they have to get economically viable for a middle-class family, and they're getting there. So, you know, as it stands right now, they're still languishing around in the chasm, but they could be exiting it pretty soon. As you move past that social proof, snapping back to our industry, which is economic viability of an oil and gas project. Ours is pretty easy, right? It's kind of black and white. So, oh, that does, that's not economic. Oh, that is economic. Okay, social proof, gone. You know, it's done. Now we're moving into the early majority. Um, and then from there, once you hit about the 50% adaptation, you start moving into what's called the late majority. And that's when everyone else comes rushing in, right? That's, yeah. that's everybody and their brothers. <laughs> starts, that, that's the Permian Basin in early 2014. That's the Permian Basin uh, in 2018. Uh, Everyone else is rushing in. I like um, it. That's just where I said uh, Parsley jumped in. <laughs> and I kind of feel bad about that. I do because I think I agree with you that it, eh, I don't know if they're late majority. However, they're riding the line. They're on the line. Yeah. They're, they're on the they're, line. There's several on the line. I think their timing was just purely because of the creation of the company, 
right? And mm-hmm. and what it spurned from, basically the old Parker and Parsley yep. leases yeah. that were yep. withheld. And they decide, okay, let's you know, let's. They saw a lot of IPOs happen in the last several years, so let's do this too, right? So mm-hmm. I don't think it was so much them being late to the game of adopting the technology and adopting the innovations. It was just the timing of the market yeah. more than anything else, right? So, um, so that late majority, everyone rushes in. Adaptations, innovations are still occurring because you know you got more people, right? More people are providing more to the baseline of innovation. Um, but then you get to the very end and the laggards phase. That's the last ones in. Those are the ones that come drag, you drag them kicking and screaming into the Permian Basin, right? Those are the ones that say, fine, we'll finally do this. Um, but that, in my opinion, is also the most dangerous part of this adaptation curve. That's where the coal industry was. That's where they started to fall down because they got complacent. In fact, I think I think uh, Everett Rogers should have called that instead of the laggers. Should have called that the complacency stage mm. because that's what it is. Yeah. You you everyone's you, just comfortable and comfortable. You 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 hone in on an innovation or a technology that you adopt and you say this is good, right? I I, I can't extract any more out of this. No, that's the wrong answer. You have to be tireless on how you go about your work. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, you are complacent. And complacency kills. So that's what I drive into my organization all the time. Keep pushing forward. You know, be tireless about how you approach your subsurface work. Because if you aren't, then you're not innovating anymore. You're not thinking outside of that complacent stage. And that does nobody any good. Mm-hmm. in our company. We're all shareholders, right, at Diamondback. Everybody mm-hmm. at Diamondback, all the way down to our receptionists, our shareholders in the company. So when we do better as a company, we all do better, right? So because of that, that's the least I can do is push that yeah. innovation forward all the way to the end till we're 100% adapted, you know, to, to more mm-hmm. and more innovation. So Gosh, um, that's got to be an interesting interview or interesting room to be in at (laughs) Diamondback. So here's kind of the, the, you know, how I place within the production graph for the Permian Basin, where all of these stages began and where they ended and where we're going um, into the future here. So in 10 years, we've seen over 400% growth in oil production, just a staggering amount. I mean, this was September of 2018, from the uh, EIA that was compiled by the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. And what you can see here is we were producing, just from the Permian alone, 3.5 million barrels of oil. And that's just crude. That's not that's not barrels of oil equivalent. That's just straight mm-hmm. crude. Um, massive amount. Mm-hmm. You fast forward to January, I believe it was January of this year, there was a new, there was a new number revised on this. Uh, they didn't have the graph ready for it. But it was 4.2 million barrels of oil. No shit. Um, you saw 700,000 barrels of oil occur essentially within four months. Increase what? in the daily production. So now that's impressive. That is impressive. 
That's more than impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mike Party goes on the show and he talks about how there's a lot of ducks. There's a lot of, like the amount of drilling in the last right yeah, couple dr- of years. Drilling has decreased, and you know it's like people are catching up to some of the ducks that they've drilled. And I don't know if he was he's kind of correlating it to technology is getting better. Price is kind of rebounding. So now we can understand, hey, at the time, if we completed this, you know, it may have not been economic. You know, we put five, ten perfs in, right. away. Now we're putting 50 perfs in and, you know, oh, sure. 4,000 feet. And, that, and that's part of this, right? Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about in the technology part how we're innovating. That's one of the innovation knobs, if you will, to, for us to continue moving up and to the right here. But just to look at the, the graph down there in the bottom right, the one with the little uh, lines on there that you can you can see kind of aligned to the uh, uh, different inflection points, if you will, within that production graph. Um, really, the start of this was around 2007, right? 2007, mm-hmm. 2008 is when people were really starting to say, "Holy cow, we got something here! Let's 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 drill in a manner that's equivalent to what has been progressing in the Barnett, what has been progressing in other unconventional basins that extract resources more efficiently from horizontal wells, right? Up to that point, everyone's like, ooh, Wolfberry, let's drill a vertical well and commingle everything. Well, that was still a pretty tough economic time back then, Mm -hmm. and it was still a pretty tough uh, economic argument to do that because, you know, the production from those vertical wells, I mean, it was okay in some areas, but it was pretty, pretty poor in others, um, especially in areas that are wildly economic now horizontally. Mm-hmm. So mm. let's push that horizontally. And what you can start to see is that in 2007, you can see it kind of bottomed out at about 850,000 barrels of oil per day. The whole Permian Basin was making just a little bit more than what we just increased in four months. Just to put that in context, Jeez. the whole Permian Basin was making that. That's so an interesting statement. So from 2007 to 2008, I think you really started seeing an uptick down there to the to the yeah. lower right. And, and we're looking at a graph that's exponential in growth, and you got like six tangents on this. On this <laughs> I curve. do. Yeah, I stretch a little bit, but it's all right. Um, so that first initial tangent right there, you can kind of see the the uptick. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. the first uptick from from that base, and I think that's really the innovators, right? So that that's the the EOGs, the Simerexes, those guys that went out there and started drilling horizontal, not only in the Wolf Camp in the Southern Midland Basin, but also like in the Bone Spring Sands yeah. out there in the Delaware, right? Mm-hmm. Simerex was drilling Bone Spring wells since you know, shoot, two thousand six, two thousand seven. Yeah. Get it? So way. yeah, so. Um, then what happened is you had what I called a sprash, right? So that price equilibrium hiatus happened in 2008, 2009. If you all remember, prices went up to like $154 a barrel, like almost instantaneously for, for no other reason than overreaction from the commodity markets because, you know, China was just sucking up all the barrels it could at that point in time. And everyone said, oh, my God, their, their thirst is unquenchable. We have to keep rising the price of this commodity. Well, way too high, right? Yeah. Um, and what happened, very obviously, is that it overreacted and came back down very precipitously. It went from 154, I think, in July down to uh, in the low 30s, if I remember right, in January 2009. So very, very short time. We had just almost complete precipitous drop. And 
that hiatus, if you will, within that time period where everyone's like, whoa, what's going on here? Um, reset the whole curve, right? Because you're still in the innovators phase. You weren't past the, the, the chasm yet. So from there, we reset it. When prices started to rebound, you had a reset of the innovators again. Again, EOG, Simrax, yeah, Apache started coming in a little bit, maybe a couple other companies as well. Um, they really started to to uh, 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 play the game, if you will. Energen was another one. Okay. You know, they were drilling horizontal wells into Delaware for a long time as well. Um, so we're really building up momentum into that chasm jump. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah, we're starting to build some momentum. So you can see right there in 2010, you have an inflection point change. And that inflection point change right there, I think, is the introduction of the early adopters. Right, You had the early adopters arrive and look at this and say, man, you guys are doing great work here. Let's get in and do it too and make it better. Mm -hmm. So that increase in technology, that increase in innovation adoption in our industry, you know, essentially resulted in a much higher rate of production growth because of that. So what you see there is a huge step rate change in, in, in production from the Permian Basin from 2010 to 2013. And then about 2013 was the chasm, right? Well, we crossed that really easily yeah. because yeah. prices were high. Everybody said, man, you can't do wrong. You can drill a well anywhere in the Permian Basin and make money, right? So chasm was jumped over pretty quickly. Um, then from 2013 to 2014 was the early majority. You, know, you really started to see a lot of people stream in. Uh, to the Permian Basin, you remember how crazy it was at that point in time, right? Um, then, 2014 to 2016, you can see the inflection change there. We actually didn't really drop production term in terms of a general sense of production growth. We were still growing our production in the Permian. It was just slowing at that point in time. That was purely, again, price disequilibrium. Right, you had this huge drop in oil price just because of the glut from you know not being able to uh, sell your product essentially because we were just a wash in oil at that point in time. Uh, so the price dropped, but I think what occurred is that once you move past the chasm, once you had proof that 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 this technology and this innovation could work, you retain that memory. Right. So mm -hmm. you retain that. You don't start from zero mm. when it becomes, when it hits social proof again. Mm. You don't lose it. I remember, I remember riding it. a bike. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> I rode a bike the other day. Um, so from 2016, when things really started to come back out of, of the, 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 the low, the dark days, if you will, the Permian, you know, from 15 and early 16, you saw that curve jump start again yeah. and in fact i would say late right there at around late 2016 early 2017 that late majority kicked in you saw everybody stream to this basin you know prod people were pulling projects out of every other basin and moving it to the permian wow mm -hmm. that's right they were pulling stuff out of the bakken they were yeah. pulling stuff out of eagleford they were pulling stuff out of the rockies yeah. they were pulling stuff out of the anadarko and moving it to the permian companies that weren't even involved in the permian before the price disequilibrium started jumping in you know one one case in point is oasis right oasis bought forges oh, acreage in the delaware base and that happened that happened during that phase. That happened after the price disequilibrium event. So, Sorry, guys. 
these people are now saying this is the place to be, right? This is that proof was already there. It mm-hmm. just needed to get to a point where it was economically viable again. Which Diamondback said in like 2010. Yeah, we're so 2016. Yeah, we're, guys. we're we're let's keep moving here. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, where are we at now? We're in the laggards phase, honestly. Uh, I think we're. Some would argue probably in the late, still in the late, late majority. I hope so. Um, but I think we're rapidly approaching the laggards phase because you start to see, you're starting to see kind of a a, uh, a bit of complacency in the industry. You're starting to see yeah. a lot of the, the technological adaptation we have in the operational side. You're starting to see people say, well... We're just going to use this completion design for all our wells, dude. Or we're going to use this drilling technique for all our wells. Or we're going to use this target interval for all our wells, right? We're not going to continue to push the data further and see if there's nuance we can get out of it to make our wells better. Um, so, so do you think that's a combination of you know some of these larger public companies signing these you know ten, twenty well deals saying, hey? We're going to have you complete all these wells for us. We're going to run the same design in all these wells, et cetera. Et cetera. Oh, yeah. No, that, that's that's something that uh, uh, when you sign long-term contracts, you also sign price assurity, right? Mm-hmm. But that price assurity usually revolves around a pretty consistent design. Mm-hmm. And that can turn into a problem. That is when you get to a point where you're not innovating anymore because you're just cookie cuttering everything. So about 100 mesh. Right, yeah, boom, that's all you have to do. Um, I think that's why we're here. So to me, we need to continue to push the innovation forward. We need to get to a point where we move into a phase where we reignite the innovation and continue to push that adaptation all the way to 100%. Um, so, you know, just a few things about what really has worked to create this success. I think a lot of people know, right? I mean, just even at, like, if you read a, a Fox news article or something like that, everybody knows about horizontal wells and fracking, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's, that's the nexus of how we've changed as an industry. Um, but I think on the geoscience side, a lot of what we've done to ascertain a better understanding of the subsurface is what's really driven us to make better wells, to properly locate our wells, not only within the stratigraphy, but also within the basin. Um, you know, increased structural understanding through enhanced seismic processing, uh, detailed stratigraphic and sequence stratigraphic interpretation of a basin, uh, better geomagic chemical understanding, better geomechanical understanding. All these things kind of interplay with each other. It's a multivariate problem, right? It's not just one. It's not a binary problem. Oh, you have good geochemist you have good geochemistry here. Okay, you're good. Go drill a eight million dollar well. No? What? Bad idea. <laughs> Bad idea. <laughs> it worked in the bar. I, I, I am not going to invest in that. Uh, so because of that you need to have a clearer understanding of all of it. And I think as we continue to push technology on the f- on the forefront of gathering that data to m- 
allow us to make more informed interpretations. I think that's what's pushing our technology in a subsurface forward, pushing our innovation in a subsurface forward. I mean, there's a lot of neat things that they're doing now, right? I mean, five years ago, people weren't talking about surface electromagnetic surveys to understand frac geometries. Now mm-hmm. they are, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that was like, that was snake oil five years ago. Everyone's like, oh, what the heck is this stuff? Oh, you can't do anything from the surface. That's stupid. You know, and and people are making an industry out of that mm. and with pretty good results. You know, I mean, they're getting a good, clean understanding of what's going on in subsurface from 10,000 feet at the surface. You know, I mean, it, it's it's 10, that kind of wow. it's that kind of work. It's that kind of innovation that will continue to push our industry forward. If we don't, if we stop and we say we're done, we figured it all out, that's when we die. And that's when our production graph starts going like this. It starts going down, right? And when it goes down, it's a bad day for everybody. Or Um, as you were kind of saying before, it's not that it goes down, but the amount of wellbores we're drilling in order to keep it at that constant production. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And we start eroding our economic viability. Exactly. So once we start eroding that, then we're all sunk. Neither know? of those options are okay. No, Neither none of those options. Because okay. you know, like I go into in another in another part of this, I basically say when you reach a point where you get complacent, and in our industry that means production growth starts to wane uh, or even flatten, but demand growth continues to go up. What happens there? Another price disequilibrium event, right? You start seeing high oil prices. Yeah. At first, you say, "Oh, it's great news for our industry." Oh man, hundred dollars a barrel, two hundred dollars a barrel—that's awesome. Everyone's lighting their cigars with hundred-dollar bills and yeah. <laughs> having a good time, right? Um, no, that's not a good time. No, because I get fearful of that moment because that tells me that there's another technology out there waiting mm. to replace us mm. because we've reached a position of yes. That social proof we've been able to attain in in you know in oodles and oodles of 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 uh, viability, but for energy consumption across the world, there's an adaptation curve there too, mm-hmm. right? So that adaptation curve says if it costs me an awful lot of money to use a barrel oil to create energy or to convert to energy then I'm going to go for something that's cheaper. Exactly. And it's that next technology, and I'll talk about that a little bit with the Lazard study, is that next technology that shows if it starts becoming more economically viable to use that instead of fossil fuels, that is kind of a signal of there's someone waiting Mm -hmm. in the wings. So if we allow this to happen, if we allow that disequilibrium event to happen, they could replace us or at least start to take a significant amount of market share. And that's a big problem. Just kind of like you were talking about before with Tesla. I mean, they're chomping at the bit to hop over the chasm, right? Mm -hmm. So if oil, all of a sudden we're at $100 and we tank again because we fail to innovate, then that just gives them that, you know, that opportunity to say, sorry, now it's our time to shine. Right. And not to push innovation on you, but we got about an hour to get through this and sure. the Lazards. So let's, uh, let's do it. Let's yeah. keep pushing. Let's go. Move to the next slide here. Ah, here we go. So one of the things here that I talk about is, you know, what really makes the Permian work better, 
right? I mean, there's basins everywhere that are being exploited. And I would say a vast majority of those basins are really kind of one-trick ponies. I think what sets the Permian apart is that there's so many targets to potentially exploit here. It's just stacked up in front of us waiting to 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 be exploited. Um, and I also think one of the things that make this area so neat for a geoscientist and so challenging at the same time is the fact that there's such a complex deposition over those organic-rich mud, mud rocks, detrital, calcareous, and siliceous sediments throughout the entire basin. This isn't a true unconventional. The Wolf Camp Sprayberry, the Wolf Camp Bone Spring is not a true unconventional. They're a hybrid place. Mm. They're, they're a smush of organically rich mud rocks that have a storage and deliverability system and organically poor siliceous and, and calcareous debrites or sandstone siltstone packages that have their own storage and deliverability system. And we hook into all of it. Mm-hmm. When we when we drill these wells and complete them, so that re- that complexity around these hybrid plays, I think, is what drives not only our success, but also drives how difficult it is sometimes to understand why some wells are really good and why some wells are really poor, right? And they could be a mile apart from each other, <laughs> and you're just like, what's going on here? So it's that complexity, I think, you know. I think you said in another in the in the first episode we had you know what what gets us up in the morning we should get up in the morning excited right that complexity is what gets me up hell in the morning, yeah right? Let's go. so because i always want to continue to drive forward and understand what's going on so that's 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 what drives me right 100 percent. just to that. poke in real quick i don't think our geologic models explain why the complexity is so intense I don't see how we're getting these silt packages bounded by these high organic clay packages and it's just stacked thousands of feet tall. I don't see an or- a geologic model yet to explain that complexity. I think the broad cycles, the large cycles of sedimentation in the basin are fairly well understood, but the nuance that you just stated, I think, is still the gray area, Yeah. right? That, that's where we need to push our innovation. We need to understand how fine can we get these cyclic understanding in this depositional model, right? And you can do it on a 1D sense from a well here and a well over here and a well over here, but how do you tie all that together, right? How do you get to a point where you feel confident that you can get a high-resolution model across the three-dimensional area, right? Because that's what we deal with every day. Mm-hmm. We don't drill vertical wells anymore. That's right. We drill horizontal wells, 10,000 feet, 12,000 feet. So we're interacting with an awful lot of rock. Mm-hmm. And to understand that in three dimensions is what's extremely important for us. But yeah, I, I lovingly call this basin the, the trash heap, you know, because that's really what it is, right? It's, it's just this huge trash heap of sediment that just comes roaring into the basin, um, from multiple directions, really. Uh, you know, from the map there you see to the right, this is something that Wright published in 2011. He was looking mostly at the Pennsylvanian sediments and how they evolved through time uh, in the Permian Basin. But I love this map because, first of all, 
I don't have to pay Blakey to use his paleo depositional <laughs> map. I can just reference right and use this one because actually I think this is probably a little bit more uh, accurate, a little bit more yeah. accurate of what the depositional setting was for the Wolf Campion time. Sure. Uh, this is at the end of the uh, uh, Virgilian, right, and into, into the Pennsylvania, yeah. into the into the uh, uh, Wolf Campion. So what you can see there, you see, you know, sediment coming from the north. Uh, uh, from, you know, the ancestral Rockies uplift there, the, the Pedernal uplift up to the north. There's sediment sources from that. That feeds the northwest shelf in the Delaware Basin. You also have sediment sources to the north in the Midland Basin. Those, are, those tend to get blocked a little bit by that horseshoe atoll. Uh, you kind of have fill and spill type events occurring on and occurring during that time with in the interplay of the, the horseshoe atoll. Uh, hmm. there's some evidence showing that there's like some, some fields within, you know, the, the, the Wolf Campion and Leonardian sediments in the Midland Basin that I have a direct control by the, the, uh, Horseshoe Atoll. So that oh. was a, a speed bump, if you will, yeah. for sediment sourcing in from the North, uh, down into the, to the, uh, kind of the middle portion or central portion of the Midland Basin. So do you see that as well on the Delaware Basin side? Because we have that similar kind con- well, not the horseshoe atoll, but we right. have this, this reef margin that yes. kind of sticks out. Yes. And then, yeah, you do. I mean, there's, there's, there's spill points, right? I, I think one of the things that's been really shown on the horseshoe atoll in particular, you have these pinnacle reefs, right? You have these, these developed areas where essentially reef topography was higher there than it was in other parts. Um, you may have had massive development of these kind of tidal channels, if you will, during the Pennsylvanian, and that created a, mm. a topographic low that as you started filling in, that remnant of that topographic low carried up through time, and that created essentially a channeling point for a lot of the sediment above, you know? And, and I mean, just for a perfect case in, in point, the Dean Ackerley Field in Northeast Martin County is a direct result of one of those topographic lows in the Horseshoe Atoll. It essentially focused a lot of Dean sediment and just kind of dumped it mm. right there on the low energy side into the basin. And you have this huge thickening of Dean sediment at like 250 feet, and you get to the edges, and it's like 100 feet thick, right? Because you had this huge focal point of mm. sedimentation right there at the at the uh, the edge of the atoll. So I think one of the other things to really understand too is that you got sedimentation coming off the platform. Everybody thinks of the platform as this like stable yeah. environment. <laughs> it's just aggradational. It's just making carbonate. Stop it's it. Doing its thing. Stop it. There's huge apron fields around yeah. the platform that have debrites that are just insane. Massive yeah. in the Wolf Campion time, right? So this thing is sourcing a lot of sediment. It just happens to be very proximal. Yeah. Right. And another thing you have to be thinking too is all that sediment is being reworked. Like that is later Paleozoic sediment that's not only being uplifted but eroded away. And now that's sourcing your wolf camping. Mm -hmm. That's sourcing your spray berry. Exactly. So So there's a lot of sources. Then you have the eastern shelf obviously providing some influence in the eastern side of the Midland Basin. And I think the one thing that is kind of almost forgotten is take a look at the marathon uplift down there south. It's arguable. There's people out there. Just churning away. Making making sediment, right? So, you know, in our area, uh, Diamondbacks position there in Pecos County, we got yeah. a lot. We got a lot of sediment coming from the south, not from the north. Like 
you see in other parts of the Delaware yeah. Basin. Yeah, I we kind of totally we kind of we kind of liken our Pecos asset as not your grandpa's Delaware Basin. <laughs> right? <laughs> I like so, that. Um, there's there's a lot of complexity down there that's driving some of the the uh, subsurface complexity that, that we have to account for when we drill our wells. Yeah, there's so and, much geology we want to get into, man. But yeah, we'll, 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 we'll get that at the we'll end. We'll that. recap. Yeah, chug yeah. Chug that's it. right. So go ahead, go to the the next slide. So there you go. There's there's deeper dive on kind of more technical advances. You know, structural understanding of kind of the macro scale has really kind of increased in the Permian Basin uh, through insight from modern seismic and and other. Obviously, the the well is just pockmarked with wells, right? So there's a lot of information from the from the well well born data too. Um, as we continue to uplift that understanding at the meso and micro at the meso scale, we can start to see relationships with structural fabric in these rocks, right? As if we know where these faults are located, if we know where these flexures are located, we can start to understand, okay, how is that driving structural fabric in our target intervals? And how can we take advantage of that? How can we understand if it's detrimental? Because all fractures are not created equal, right? So fractures can be good, fractures can be meh, fractures can be bad. So we have to understand that through this type of analysis to really hone in on the key areas to say, okay, this area here with this structural fabric is going to be advantageous for economic wells in this area here. Uh-uh, this is going to plumb a whole bunch of water. Right? <laughs> yep. No, we don't want to drill this at all. So we stay away from that. We go and gravitate toward that and apply, you know, our, our, our capital expenditures in the areas that are going to us the highest rate of return. And then, of course, geochemistry is another another thing that kind of near and dear to my heart. Mine um, too. Little little, I guess I'm a little bit of a, a self-taught geochemist. Um, I apologize to all the geochemists in the audience. <laughs> Jarvis uh, get offended. <laughs> Jarvis been offended. <laughs> I'm going to get an email. Um, so, you know, previous understanding of organic geochemistry really kind of was typically biased by a type basin, right? The modified Van Crevelin diagram, the thing you see down there to the lower left. That, always modified. Always modified. That was derived in the Paris Basin. I mean, what created those maturation pathways is different in every single basin setting. So you can't take that and say that, well, my pathway doesn't plot along a type two, so that must mean I'm in a type three. No, it just means that your organics in your basin setting are just different, mm -hmm. right? And they're all not created equal. What was the timing of that basin, by the way, the Paris Basin? Do you have any idea? Is it Permian? Paleozoic? Or? It's Paleozoic. Okay. I, I can't recall the exact timing on that. Okay. Pennsylvania. So, you know, one of the things that always drives me nuts, too, is, is the VRO, or the, the vitronite reflectance. Uh, VRO is created in a coal industry for coal prospecting. That's a type 3, you know, that's a type 3 carrageen, uh, something that's <laughs> got a lot of vitronite, something that's woody, something that's herbaceous. And right? it doesn't have a lot of diamondoids, which oil has a ton of. Right. So... To me, I look at that and say, why are we using VRO? Why are we using correlations to VRO from things like pyrolysis? No, yeah. stop it. <laughs> stop stop it. using that. Yeah. It's, not, it's not 
representative of the basin you're in and the setting you're in. I know there have been fields that people have just kind of written off initially in the Permian because they just said, oh, it's not mature, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, you know, they drill a well and they say, oh, no, this is is definitely mature. So one of the things I really focus on is let's strip out things like you see in the Van Craveland diagram there where you start trying to fit this chemo-compositional grouping Mm. to a source organic sediment or a a understanding of where that organics came from, right? Did it come from a terrestrial source? Did it come from a marine source? Things like that, type one, type two, type three, those kind of things. Let's look at the data. Let's look at the chemical composition. Let's look at the chemo-compositional result of burning the rock, right? And understanding what those values mean tied back to the produced fluids and understand the link between the two you know because if you have a value that you're getting from the rock and you have a value you're getting from the oil and they diverge from each other that's telling you something Mm. that's telling you you probably got a lot of migration going on Right. right and what you see in your rock source here is not actually generating the oils that you're producing and you know that can lead you down a path that's incorrect and potentially make large business decisions based upon incomplete information. So really want to try to avoid that, right? So what we want to do is strip it back, say, okay, let's burn the rock because that's an that's a unbiased measurement. That's, that's not right. some guy looking at a microscope and right. saying, okay, that one reflects, that one doesn't, that one reflects, that one doesn't. <laughs> I think that's bitumenite. Maybe it is. is I don't know. water or it oil? Could, it could be bitumen because yeah. bitumen reflects too. Um, <laughs> but uh, so let's just burn it and see what the chemical oh, yeah. result is. Yes, right? sir. And, and that's what we strive to do pretty much in everything we do now. But maps at Diamondback, we don't put... VRO and anything. Nice. There's no VRO is a four letter word <laughs> in our shop. It's all T Max, right? And we, we want to look at maturities. Um, but then even from there, you can start parsing out some of that data to understand these different maturity pathways, which can relate to different types of organics. So is that where you kind of differentiate? Hey, we have a high S1 here. You know, we've had a large amount of migration or. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Kind of see what I mean. Yeah. And that's where the that's where the benefit of like extract work is, right? So you extract that hydrocarbon, that free hydrocarbon that's stuck in the rock. Because I mean, if you if if it was mobile, you wouldn't have it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it would be gone, right? I mean, it wouldn't be in the sample anymore because it would escape. Um so you extract that fluid out of the rock and you understand the chemical composition of that fluid. And then you compare that back to the produced fluid you get from that wellbore later. That's the connection you need to make. Because if you actually have a lot of fluid in the rock that you're assessing when you go through a geochemical assay like this, that's actually great because that hydrocarbon that's within the rock that's either stuck in the carrageen or stuck in, in very impermeable uh, uh, porosity and uh, impermeable uh, intergranular porosity, it's stuck there. It might be something that was formed there, right? So if you can assess that and compare it to your produced fluids, I think that tells you something about migration. And I'll tell you what, in these mud rocks, there's an awful lot of migration. <laughs> kind of <laughs> um, crazy. It, it is kind of crazy. But if you think about it, just do a thought exercise. 
if you go to 65 million years or so, Laramide, yeah. or about 60 million years was the last time the Laramide really, really had, had a, a push, deep yeah. influence in the Permian Basin. Let's say that was the last reorganization event, right, where we had uplift mm. and started, things started flowing around in the basin a little bit more. Um, if that was your last one, in order for an oil molecule to move in 10 miles, let's just say 10 miles, which is a lot. Yeah. Permian Basin, right, from one, one spot to the other. Instantaneous velocity of that is the width of human hair every year. So, yeah. I, <laughs> so, yeah, going yeah. back to the thought exercise, I just can't, it's hard to imagine the permeability allowing allowing migration. I mean, it, it generated, it left, and then something else came in. In that kind of perm and that kind of environment, it's, it's also hard to really well, imagine. remember what this basin is full of a highly stratified rock column. Yeah. So where does that flush production really coming from? Is it coming from the mud rocks? Oh, uh, the silts. Or is it coming from the more permeable, sure, more exactly. higher storage sure. rocks that are in interbedded with it? I guarantee you get some contribution from the mud rocks, especially when you bust them apart, hmm. right? Because you're just breaking open that porosity and it's flowing back to the yeah. wall bore. But that first real true flush is probably coming from those really good reservoirs that are stuck in between all the mud rocks. And we'll come back to geology, but I think the Laramide, I think you can argue the Davis Mountains volcanics at like 30 million years. That could be. Oh, sure. I mean, I was little, just using that as a, yeah. a, 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 a kind of a thought of exercise, yeah. just a reference yeah. of time. Yeah. I mean, if you do 30 million years, you're looking at what? The width of two human hairs <laughs> <laughs> per year. You know, so. Interesting. Yeah, so, you know, going into drilling and completion, I mean, obviously we touched on that a little bit before. Um, shorter days to depth curves. I mean, Diamondback just did a 12,500-foot uh, uh, lateral in less than eight days. No you know, way. So, you know, spud the, the TD. Midland Basin? So, Midland Basin. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, okay, you're not doing Delaware like yeah, that. Yeah, so, I mean, that, that's that's something that, you know, we, we, we really – we really kind of put a feather in our cap on, you know, so that was really good. Um, but a lot of other companies are doing the same, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's getting better out there. Uh, completion side, you know, I mean, they're just putting more holes in the rock. You can see in that diagram up in the upper right there, it's yeah. something from uh, Pioneer in 2016. You know, to the left there is what we were doing in the past, right, when we were first starting this technology adaption. Mm -hmm. uh, what you see there to the right is essentially where we're at today. We're just putting more holes in the in the pipe. And we're yeah. putting more sand in the ground and more That's fluid right. in the ground. Not much um, height. Control your height. Get your width Control your height. Get your width. Yeah. All those good things, but sure. are you actually doing that? Well, that's ah. a story for another day. Um, <laughs> we'll get you back, DC3. another day. Uh, and then, you know, down there to the lower right, you know, understanding that complexity of the fractures you're creating in a 3D mechanical earth model, I think, is extremely important, where a lot of companies are moving towards now. Mm -hmm. Instead of going to this, you know, more typical bi-wing frack model, you know, where you're saying, oh, you're generating this one fracture. No. You know, you're, you're generating a huge amount of complexity within the subsurface that I will argue is already there. You're just enhancing it through yep. your completion, right? That, that complexity is already built into the rock. It's a geometry of the rock that is inherent, that you're just mm. helping a little bit, become a little bit more permeable. So it's, uh, those, kind of, those kind of models are, are really beneficial for us to understand that complexity. 
So here's, you know, like I said, here's an example of that failed diffusion. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of technological adaptation failures, as I stated before, can tend to fail at the chasm. Like we're talking about with electric vehicles, um, failed diffusion doesn't necessarily mean it failed at the chasm. It can fail anywhere mm-hmm. on the curve, right? And one in particular is where it fails at the laggard stage, at the laggard stage, or like I said before, the the complacency stage. Um, and this is a, a couple of graphs over there of the coal industry. And what you can see there, uh, you know, back in 1985, you can see the, the overall production of coal was continuing to e- increase, even though employment was going down, they're just becoming more efficient, right? They're becoming, they're getting more out of the ground with less people. They're becoming more efficient. They were still adapting a little bit. You can see at about 2001, they started to flatten in terms of, in fact, they started to increase employment a little bit and you can see what happened to their efficiency. They and started they- to slightly increase their employment or flatten it. And their, their efficiency decreased. Their efficiency decreased, and they flattened their production. Is it crazy for me to say that that's kind of equivalent to what's happened in 2016, 2017? Now we're we potentially getting more help back in. The industry's coming back. Uh, is this predicting that we're not going to get much better at what we're doing if we don't continue to push it forward? Yes, I think this is where you can uh, start yeah, to yeah. see us starting to plane out if you will, on our production graph. And that plane out is what worries me. That's today, by the way, that we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, there's pressures outside of just what we're doing in a subsurface that's causing that production increase, that decrease in the increase, if you will, or decrease in the the production growth. Um, There's outside pressures such as takeaway, you know, essentially just button up against, you know, capacity more than anything else we can't move the barrels out of the basin you know that that's one thing that's starting to become alleviated but then also at the same time it's it's something that you know now we're dealing with pressures on flaring and stuff like that people are becoming more critical of the flaring that's going on in the the permian basin people are becoming more critical on the water disposal that's related to all this development you know if you start curtailing water disposal or at least not understand where you're going to go with your water that you have to slow production because if you can't put it anywhere, where are you going to put it? You can't just, can't just take it out. You yeah. can't take it out and you can't just spill it on the ground. You're going to go to jail. Yeah. So, it's not the 40s anymore. No, it's not the 40s anymore. <laughs> um, so those things, those are the other portion. It's not just a subsurface piece. It's everything else. Yeah. Right. Those, those other pieces are going to be, are going to be pushed forward through innovations on the engineering side. And understand how you can either treat the water to a point where you can discharge it on the surface or treat the water to the point where you can reuse it. Reuse it either in our operations or, you know, something I was just uh, uh, enlightened to is as a professor at UTPB now, I think he just came from Purdue. He's in the petroleum engineering department who is working on a project. And in fact, this will be a shout out for him. Hopefully he's listening. Uh, that was trying to make uh treated or, or, or produced water potable Whoa. using solar technologies. Falcons up. Falcons up. <laughs> so, you know, it's one of those things. It's, it's those kind of innovations that need to push forward so we, can, yeah. so we can continue our production up, uplift while mitigating some of the things that could cause it to decrease. 
And I also know some companies are using produced water to frack new wells, and they're actually getting better results because of it. But that's that's site specific. Yeah, site specific. Site specific. Um, and formation specific, I would argue. Yeah. Uh, because a lot of water sometimes is blended, right? So you have got some fun things in there. Yeah. yeah. So there's there's some fun things, right? <laughs> so you're extracting water from all these wells that might be coming from multiple targets, and you're blending it all in the one pipeline, and you're taking it to a facility where you would then use it and recycle it. And pump it into a specific target and that water source might not be really right for that mm, target yeah. you might induce damage to that to that formation from that non-native water even though it's from underground it's from say the lower spraybury and you're trying to pump it into the wolf camp totally right? different. so totally different so control it's, your facts I mean, I mean this kind of ties back into the geochemistry thing right it's right. just hey we can't just say hey this is brine water this yeah. is brine water Let's pump it back in. Right. So. Oh, yeah. So, you know, going back to the coal industry, I argue at that point when you started seeing that decrease in their production, that's when you started seeing the end of the coal industry. Because to me, that decrease then caused an increase in the cost of energy because now there's less coal to feed into the energy generation industry. That's and, a 2009? Yeah, 2001 is when you started to see the plane out. And then it was about 2006 or so. You can see down there on the, or 2010-ish, if you can okay. see down there on the uh, uh, lower graph, is where essentially you had a switch where natural gas started taking over for coal. In terms, of, yeah. in terms of energy creation. Because what happened there was the social proof. Yep. It was no longer economically viable to burn coal. It was more viable to burn gas. Why? Because our industry made gas so dang cheap yep. because we were extracting it in such high quantities that we had nowhere to go with it. Yeah. So the prices went through the basement for natural gas, and a lot oh, of the power yeah. companies and utilities said, why don't I just convert my coal plant to a natural gas plant? Yep. It doesn't take that much money to do, and I'm going to save a ton of money doing it because I can use a cheaper fuel source now. So that was a chasm jumping moment for another energy source that's wow. starting to re that started to replace coal and is continuing to replace coal today. Yeah. So it's kind of the death knell of the coal industry. You know, our 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 current administration wants to bring the coal industry back, but you know, in my opinion, I think we should just my opinion too, we should just let it die. Agreed. <laughs> because yep. it's I'm in. not viable anymore right you know for for the future of the energy scape that we live in today so you know going back to the title where do we go from here what are the things what are the things out on the horizon that we can use to keep pushing that adaptation forward you know uh kind of the 800 pound grill in a room obviously is is crunching large and large amounts of data right using machine learning algorithms uh using artificial intelligence, although I think artificial intelligence is kind of a misnomer. Um, it's more machine learning. It's more creating algorithms to understand mountains and mountains of data and extract patterns from it, right? Yep. Um, I tend to call it augmented learning. I think that's really what it is at the end of the day. Hmm. And, I mean, you, you get on Totco right now, if you're getting drilling data from, from a rig, and you open up every single channel <laughs> no. that they're recording, I you'll refuse. crash your computer. <laughs> I refuse. I mean, it, it's, it's just <laughs> gigabytes of data yeah. being generated Insane. daily right yeah. off of these things. Um, we can't 
in our lifetimes go through that much data and make correlations to things. So we have to write algorithms to marry those data sources together to understand what truly does relate to yeah. another. And that's what we do with these these algorithms. And so we're feeding in all of this data, geoscience data, engineering data, operational data together to understand right. where those patterns lie. As we, we should be. And be more efficient, right? right? I mean, that's really what it comes down to that's at the right. end of the day is just efficiency. Yeah. I think the other thing it tends to combat too is bias, right? Because the mm. data is speaking to you. That's it's right. It's not a geologist that's speaking to you and, saying, on the geologist, and man. saying, Hey man, you know, <laughs> I mean, honestly, you know, I, I asked this at the PBGS luncheon that I gave this talk at yeah, and asked people to raise their hands. Of course I got no takers because <laughs> no one wants to admit it. I was the only one to raise my hand. Um, have you in your career actually ignored data that didn't fit your interpretation? Oh, hundred percent. Build a structure map off fucking well tops. <laughs> <laughs> so easy answer. <laughs> so because of that, we're introducing bias. Yeah. Right. We're introducing our own, our own thoughts, our own, our own dogma, if we will, into these mountains and mountains of data. And if we ignore stuff, we're going to miss something. Yeah. And when we miss something, it means a lot of dollars. Wow. So that's why I think this machine learning, the way it's going right now, it really needs to be adopted into our daily work because it mitigates bias, right? I hate yeah. bias. Yeah. I kill bias wherever I can find it. Yeah. <laughs> that's really what it needs. Bias needs to end. Um, the other thing is continually pushing into deeper inventories, Right, going into outside the lower spray barrier, the middle spray barrier, the wolf camp A, the wolf camp B, the third bone spring, the second bone spring, pushing outside of that stuff. What's our upside targets out there? Right, you can tell from this. I'm a Yankees fan. Sorry to all the Texans out there. Um, you know, the green there is kind of what I consider the major league. Right, these are the one. These are the these are the 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 primo targets. These are the ones that are economically viable wildly today. Right, and. What we have to do, especially when times are good, is we have to invest in our farm system, right? You don't invest into the pro team because you've already stacked it with really good players. You let those players do what they do, mm -hmm. right? They'll win you championships, right? They'll, they'll do what they do, but they're going to retire soon. They're going to leave your team maybe and go to another team. So you have to constantly invest in that farm system. And I'd say the AAA teams are the ones that we need to push a lot of our R&D dollars into. And those are the little yellow arrows there, you know, in terms of this uh, type section for the Midland Basin. You know, the, the AAA teams in the, in the Permian are your Clear Fork, the Joe Mill, the Dean, the Wolf Camp Seas, Cisco Canyon, Barnett. You know, these, these intervals that are being tested by going back again to a adaptation curve for that particular interval by the innovators, right? I mean, Elevation is up there drilling Merrimack Barnett wells. They're an innovator because yep. they're one of the first ones to do it. So we have to essentially understand what they're doing, see if we can do it better and become an early majority and try to crack its own technology adaptation curve for each one of those. I'm going to twist this a little bit. Scroll up just a little bit, Pete. I'm going to twist this a little bit. I think the green arrows are pointing to the industry learning what the heck is going on, and the yellow arrows are actually where we're going to make a difference in the future. Oh, yeah. I mean, because the yeah. green arrows are going to go away. That's right. They're soon. going away. Yeah. The those, are, those are the laggards the, right now. The inventory is being burned through right now. 
on those on those green Love arrows. It. It's the yellow arrows that's going to keep this industry alive, if you will, 20 years from now. Yep. So we have to push our, our investment into that. This one here, you have, uh, this is development, right? So this, the, the question du jour lately is sequential development versus tank or cube, right? right. Whatever you want to call it. Um, this is probably the most multivariate problem we have to tackle on a go forward basis, right? I mean, cause it involves all sorts of data and falls all sorts of interpretation. Um, do neighboring wells actually access the same reservoir volume at what spacing does this occur? There's so many questions, Insane. right? It's, it's too many questions almost not too many questions and not enough data. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as we move into process engineering of the major league, if you will, those, those green arrows, uh, or factory mode, what a lot of people call it, you know, we need to continue innovation to provide the best return on our investment in those major league resources. Because if we don't, then we're going to see a decrease in the production of the major league, which will not give us a financial standing to invest in the farm system. Wow, perfectly so said. we have to do better here in order for us to have an inventory down the road. Because if we degrade our viability here, we don't have any money to invest. And when you're desperate at that point, and you just start drilling whatever that looks good, that's when you're basically going to Vegas and betting, <laughs> right? So you're, you're, you're hoping that something will work, and that's just not a tenable situation. Uh, the next one here, I, I slipped this in. This is new from uh, the last time I presented at the UTB Symposium. Um, this is basically looking at the water and what we can do with water. Right out there, because right now the regulatory environment's getting a lot tougher mm -hmm. for water disposal. In the Delaware Basin, it's like 12 months for turnaround time on a disposal well to get approved to get a permit. Yeah, so oh. I mean, it is a huge process now. You have to plan so far in advance what your disposal capacity needs are going to be, and just essentially permit everything that moves and hope that you get permits back. Sure. So, yeah, you gotta. Um, have you know, there's there's worries about induced seismicity. Sure. Uh, there's worries about creating high-pressure drilling environments in the shallow section, especially in the Delaware, because we dispose of in the Delaware Mountain Group. Right. And we're drilling through that in our horizontal development. Oh, yeah. So kind of like what happened in the Midland Basin with the St. Andres, they were pressuring up the St. Andres and causing issues on the drilling side. So there is another worry that this could happen on the Delaware side, too, where there's a heck of a lot more water production coming from the, the resources that we have in the Delaware Basin. You know, three to one at best water-oil ratio in the Wolf Camp A, you know, in terms of, of that, that's at best. I mean, it, it, it can be worse in some areas. But the vast amount of resources there, still economically viable even at those high water rates. Sure. But it will become less viable if there's nowhere to put the water because – we can't put it on the ground, like we said before, and we can't just truck it out of the basin. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I ran the into, cost is way too high. I ran into this old timer who created this already. He created this huge pit that pumps the water up into fans, and fans put it up in the atmosphere, and they have chemicals in the pit. So the, the this thing's just pumping tons of barrels of water, and it evaporates. The chemical they put in the water, it goes up into the fans. The fans put it up in the air, and it evaporates. Yeah. And there's a bunch of things you have to deal with, but he puts he built a huge slope, like maybe a two-degree angle slope, 
off this pit and you just truck away oh, yeah. the, the solids. Yeah. I thought that was a pretty damn cool, innovative just, way to get rid of some water. It's things like that that we just need to continue the push forward. And we can assess their viability. You know, I mean, it, it all comes down to dollars, right? It, that, mm-hmm. Is it viable for me to go out and do something like that? Sure. You know, in terms of a, a broad business case for Diamondback Energy or for whoever you are. And at the end of the day, if it works, why, why fight it? You know, if it's something that's going to deliver you a positive return, but it's something that's different from the old standard, why would you thumb your nose at it? Right. So it's, it's, it's being open-minded, I think is one of the big basis of this whole conversation, right? To, to get past your bias of, well, no one's done that before. Well, who cares? You know, I, the, the one thing I hate the most in our industry is when someone says, well, that's the way we've always done it. Like, get out of my office, <laughs> you know, because I don't want to hear that because I know that you're complacent and I know that you're not creating any value for this company. If you say that to me, you know, that that's, that's awesome. my opinion. So with this, it's, what do we do with disp- with disposal water? I mean, there's lots of technologies. Yeah, you know, I, I remember when I was working up in the Rockies, they were doing these massive evaporation ponds, right? Where they would have essentially, see those little blowers, right? They look like snow blowers. Yeah. So, I mean, they're literally just cycling and aerosoling that water into oh, yeah. the air. Similar deal. And essentially, it's a lined pit. So, when you have that evaporation, you're going to dissolve, you're going to evaporate out salts, right? right. So, yeah. essentially, you just mine that salt out. And right. you truck that somewhere, yeah. right? So that that's a technology that's been around for decades, honestly. Um, there's multi-step filtration, right? I mean, that facility right there can handle 80,000 barrels a day. That's pretty impressive. 80,000 barrels a day of multi-step filtration. I mean, that's a massive amount of water yeah. through just a facility essentially that size, right? So it's these technologies that do exist already. Yeah. Um, the cost... To install them is high, but I think you have to think about the overall economics of the entire life of that facility and what it means in terms of how how expensive is standard disposal going to get into the future if I have to wait longer and longer times to get permits, Yeah, right? It's going to become very expensive at that point because if I'm pushing out my disposal project a year, two years, its economic viability decreases because of the time value of money. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's things like that, that that we have to push forward into. Um, kind of last but not least, you know, honestly, <laughs> I always joke about this. I feel like the great crew change has been going on for 10 years now. Yeah. Um, I kind of think it was just a fancy HR gimmick to get me into the industry. <laughs> um, but honestly, it's still happening. Right. So you have a lot of the older generation, the more experienced generation that's exiting the industry. And we need to make sure that their knowledge is not lost. We have a tendency in our industry to make the same mistakes again. Mm. And they're generational. You know, the, the, the new generation as the decision makers are making decisions that the older generation already made. Yeah. And yeah. said, and could have told them, hey, don't do that. <laughs> but they never ask. So it's our mm. job as that next generation to take over to ask all those experienced folks, hey, what happened? What happened 30 years ago when you were in my position 
and you were just bumbling around in this space and trying to figure it out. Were there learnings that you had that you had cool. that maybe you just stuck on the cutting room floor because your boss at the time said, get out of here. No, tell me about them. Yeah. All right. Tell me about those wild harebrained ideas you had at 12 o'clock at night, you know, and, and kept <laughs> you up, you know. So it, it's those things that we need to make sure is not lost. We're going to bring them on. We're going to bring those guys on the show. The other thing is to to walk the fine line of not getting biases forced into your brain and into your Mm -hmm. concepts daily. uh, That's why you have critical conversations with them. You understand the roots of where they based that interpretation, right, in a modern context. Because a lot of study has happened in the last 30 years that maybe have refuted what they did 30 years ago. So you put that into a modern context. You don't put it into the context he had at the time. Because, you know, to be fair to them, they only had what they had. Sure, They had a data set that told them one thing. And, okay, well, that's the interpretation I'm going to go with. But 30 years of of innovation later, it could be completely unbased. Well, that's just, it is what it is, right? So you have to make sure you're having those critical conversations with those people. Right. And taking those ideas that they had and making sure they're put in a modern context. Wow. That could be the best thing that's ever said on this show. So the other thing we have to do is we have to, I'm not saying we have to be OPEC 2.0, but we have to think as a unified industry right now, right? We have to start thinking about we're a pretty darn big oil player in the world. In fact, we're the number one oil producer in the world right now. We surpassed Russia Um, last, last year. So let's go. There's a little shout out there. Um, so we need to, <laughs> who said that? <laughs> it's just in my ears. Um, so we need to act in concert with each other, right? We, we can't be competing with each other. We can't think of it like I said to you guys before the, the, the show started. We can't be thinking about our industry as a series of fences, you know, where, where we're so against learning from each other that because we feel like we're going to lose some competitive advantage, mm-hmm. you know, to be honest, the basin is locked up. You're not going to find acreage on the cheap in right. a Permian basin anymore. It's just not going to happen. Not going to happen. You're going to see a, 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 a bunch of, of consolidation occurring over the next five, 10 years in the Permian basin. Who knows? All of us might be working for Exxon in 10 years. You know, that might be the case. No, um, no. <laughs> not Troy, no, no. uh, move back to California. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, we have to start thinking in that sense of, of helping each other out. Cause I, I, I believe in a rising tide lifts all boats. If I can make my neighbors better, I'm going to make myself better too. You know, and that's really how we should approach the industry as a whole. That's why data trades, things like that need to happen all the time. Uh, because not only are you trading data, but you're also trading learning, right? Because usually when that data trade comes, you have a talk, right? With that geologist over there oh, at the yeah. other company. And you say, hey, what does this mean? And they <laughs> say what they say. And you're like, oh, man, I didn't think yeah. about it that way, right? And it just inspires you to do more with the data you have. Um and then, you know, the other thing I think we really need to do is really focus on relationships with academic institutions. They are a huge resource for our industry because I hate to say it, they have a lot of cheap labor, right? It's called grad students. 100%, man. <laughs> and they're willing, um, they just want to learn. They want to learn. Story right? checks out. So, and what you need to do is we need to leverage that. 
because there's a lot of really intelligent, smart people in industry right now that can figure out a lot of stuff and have the energy to do it. And most importantly, the time to do it. Right. You know, because a lot of times we me personally, there's so many things that I want to push our geoscientists into doing, but we just don't have the time. We don't have the time to chase these things down mm -hmm. because we're chasing a rig monster, right? So we do what's best for the company at that time. You know, what's going to drive the most value. But there might be a nice-to-know thing out there that we can't do right now yeah. but could have impact down the road. So why don't we leverage that to an academic institution? Why don't we say, hey, here's a problem we have. We don't have the time to tackle it, but we'll give you the resources to do it. Right, we'll give you either the, the the monetary funding or even the data to say, hey, here's a project that you can basically create your academic, you know, foothold right. in terms of what you can present to the community. So these are the things that need to happen. A lot of companies are already doing it. You know, a mm -hmm. lot of companies are doing it, but not a lot of companies are. So we need to make sure that that's always pushing forward. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And I, just a shout out for UTPB. I see the Falcons shirt over there, right there. Uh, we need to do more with our own local resources. We got over a hundred students over there waiting for your data. Right. Yep. So we have too much propensity to outsource that to universities like UT and A and M and Texas Tech and yep. OU and Louisiana and all these comp and all these universities that, well, honestly, it's because the decision maker happen to be an alumni uh -huh. <laughs> over there, right? Uh -huh. So that's they're going to agree to that because they're helping out their alma mater. Well, that's all well and good. But at the same time, if we want Midland and Odessa to be a viable community for the oil and gas industry, we need to create a system where industry supports the university here locally so it remains sustainable throughout yep. time. Right? And so we have a pipeline locally of people that we can draw from in experience and innovation that we can draw from here instead of having to outsource it all the time. I mean, just to kind of, you know, bring it back in, I mean, Perry and myself have both done, or you've done in the process of doing a thesis on the data set that was donated to UTPB through Faskin Oil yep. Ranch. And it was just one of those things where it was fresh new data, mm -hmm. Why not? And they said, hey, yeah. here's here's a little premise. Go for it. Yeah. All of a sudden, there's a thesis coming out. I, that I have to give a shout out to Faskin. Faskin's done a fantastic job of supporting UTPB. Oh, yeah. You know, Diamondback's they, next, man. Diamondback's next. You know, Love it. I, I, I'm, I'm fully supportive of it. You know, I'm, I'm willing to, cause like I just said, there's so much on our plate right now that we just don't have the time for. But our projects wow. that are meaningful, maybe not right now, but maybe two years down the road which it takes sometimes for a grad student to figure it out. Not a hundred of them, man. Yeah. We but can get them cranking. Two years down the road, it's going to generate a lot of value for us, right? And it's also a great, it's also a great uh, uh, platform for that student to say, look at me. I can provide you value. So it creates a talent pipeline into our industry, right? So that's what we need to focus on, I think, locally. You know, I, I think, honestly, UTPB gets overlooked. 
I can tell you that right now. I saw it three years ago. I was dying. And then we won the IBA, Southwest Section IBA. We win that, the regional. We we, we technically probably tie for first place, arguably, Mm -hmm. for the the whole thing. Skips was on the team. I mean, (laughs) we we have unbelievable talent. And we went out and we got the staff. I mean, all we need is that that little bit of industry support, honestly. And and that's exactly what you're saying. So just to recap and kind of re-cage that first presentation... I think that was the most well-organized and articulated argument to get every single one of the listeners, CEO to receptionist, to understand that we are truly all in this together. If you have a data point that's not making sense and someone's just combing it over, that's not okay. Mm -mm. Those days are not today. Mm -mm. We have to take in this all into consideration. We have to innovate. We have to come together. I'm not saying that the data trades between all these big companies need to be public. I would like that to be a thing because maybe you, there's there's a faster way to innovate. However, it's happening. We are in a point right now where we got to innovate. We and, and this Lazard presentation that you're about to give us is a, maybe a 10 minute spiel on this. It's it's scary. Yeah. Probably a little shorter, uh, just because I really want to focus on one particular aspect of it. But just to understand what this is. And, and this is all public, correct? This is all public information. Okay. This is stuff you can find on Lazard's uh, uh, website. Yeah. Right? So they, they post this, basically, for general consumption. Um, essentially, what this is, is a cost assessment. A levelized what they cost call of energy. A yeah. levelized cost of energy. So what this actually does is it strips out subsidies in what it costs to generate an energy unit in mm. in all different technological ad, you know, adoptions. What, of, what's the standard measurement for that? I, th- I believe it's on a BTU basis. Okay. So um, what you can see here is basically it illustrates, you, know, you can read this uh, uh, if you download it from their site. It's just a lot of, of words here. But I think the big thing you want to take away from this is that this analysis is no subsidy involved. So right. one of the biggest things that a lot of people talk about with renewables and alternative energy sources is, oh, well, it won't survive because it's on subsidies, right? You know, if you take subsidies off, it won't do anything. And this right here, if this analysis is correct, is showing us that, no, that's not the case. So what you see here is things like solar photovoltaics and things like wind energy. If you look at the cost bands for that energy capture, you can see that they're essentially within the range of what we use today as a gas combined cycle, what you see down there at the bottom. So wind's um, between 29 and 56, and gas is between 41 and 74. Exactly. So what we're seeing here now is the cost of capture of actually generating that energy and then distributing it to you know whatever grid you want to distribute it to right. is actually lower. The technology has gotten to the point where it's more cost-effective to create a solar photovoltaic system on a utility scale than it is to use a gas combined cycle like, say, running a turbine in a converted coal plant. So that cool. in that industry, that technological adaptation is already occurring. It's been occurring in the background. Right. It's mm-hmm. been occurring in in the noise, if you will, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's waiting for a chance. 
It's waiting, it's waiting for a chance. The and laggard stage. One of the things that it's waiting for, there's two things it's waiting for. It's waiting for the laggard stage. It's waiting for us to trip up. It's waiting for us to be cold, right? The other thing it's waiting for is the one thing that is holding up things like solar uh, photovoltaics and wind energy is the cost to install these mm. things are still high compared to installing a uh, gas combined cycle or a coal plant. It's cheaper to create a coal plant and hook it into a grid than it is to create a photovoltaic system and hook it into a grid. Because honestly, photovoltaics are site specific, right? Okay. I mean, it's yeah. not sunny in Minnesota, right. but no, it's really right. sunny in Arizona. So how do you get that energy from Arizona to Minnesota, Minnesota yeah. right? So that's one of the things that, that they still have to adapt to. But the actual generation of that electricity is cheaper with those things now than they are with the standard generation capabilities today. So this is the stuff that I, I this is what keeps me up at night, right? <laughs> yeah. This is what keeps me up at night because I look at these things and this is sensitivity to the U.S. federal tax subsidies, right? So the blue is unsubsidized. And uh, the light blue is subsidized. So you can see the cost variance on oh, the photovoltaics geez. and the cost variance on the wind. So you can drop as yeah. much as $14 on the capture side for So, so wind we're going with, the with subsidies. subsidies, we're going from $29 to $14 on yes. wind. Yes. That's the levelized cost of energy capture with wind technology right now. And the same thing goes with the photovoltaics. You drop from 40 or 36 to 37, 32. That's still better than your, uh, you know, you look at some of the other things that are out there too, you know, with the, the geothermal sure. and the fuel cell, you know, a lot of those things have a long way to go. Long, right? Yeah, they're, they're going to be left behind. Photovoltaics, in my opinion, is probably the one that's going to likely yeah. create a problem. For it's got the industry. most growth on, if you look yeah. at Because it chart. has the most growth and it also has, you know, that little narrow band you see there, the, the thin film and the crystalline utility scale, that's like those giant solar farms, right? Mm -hmm. So those are, the, those are the things that are relatively cheap on, in terms of an energy capture st yeah. uh, standing. Mm. That's going to continue to get better right. with technological advances. As it should be. Yeah. And what that's going to turn into is it's going to trickle down into the rest of the solar industry. And you see those things that are rooftop residential, rooftop commercial and industrial and rooftop community. Yeah. They're very yeah. expensive right now. Right. The advances made on the utility scale will trickle into that. And it will then become more advantageous for you to line your roof with solar voltaic cells than it would be to hook into a grid. Because the cost of installation and the cost of capture is cheaper. Yeah. So it's this stuff is happening in the background. Yeah. And this is what just puts the fear of God in me, right? <laughs> yeah. Because I really like I, this industry. I yeah. really like the problems that I face every day because it's a challenge. Agreed. Right? Yep. But guess what? Those industries are filled with people who like the same thing. Sure. Yep. There's a challenge in their industry, and they're continuing to innovate. Yeah. They're continuing to push it forward. Well, their main challenge is how to beat us. Exactly. Our main challenge is how to get better, but all they're trying to do is trying to surpass us. So it's things yeah. like this right here that say, I don't want $100 a barrel. I want 
$50, a barrel. I want to become so efficient that I can create energy at a low oil price. Interesting. Yep. Cool. And, and I'm still making a profit. And sure. I'm still making a profit and staying viable for decades. Yep. Right? Whereas if I go up to $100 a barrel or $200 a barrel, that's going to create a problem for our consumers to say, why would I... Why would I do this sure. when I could do this? Yeah. yeah. All I of a could, sudden that thirty five thousand dollar Tesla makes more sense. Makes more sense. Because now Very you're 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 create you know, you're creating a chasm jumping moment for another industry <laughs> that now their social proof is attainable because the social proof for the general consumers is the cost of energy. Wow. Not what makes money for us, but right. how much we're selling it for. Right. I mean, so that that's what worries me. Yeah, it worries me, but it also excites me. I'm excited to live through this time. I'm excited for it because yeah. it, it needs to happen. It's inevitable that we need to create a more efficient way to recover energy or mm-hmm. to create energy. Right. It's inevitable and it needs to happen. However, a solar farm is not going to help us create medicine and tea. Petroleum is almost in everything. We are a petroleum society. We are a petroleum yeah. world. There's petroleum in everything. So, I mean, we're always going to need it. There's not going to be a drastic change in the way we take medicine and things that are, are demanding petroleum products. But transportation, and there's, there's obviously an energy change demand that's going to happen in the future. It needs to happen. Now what we're talking about is how fast it's going to happen, and that's where it gets kind of fun. What's our number one consumers? Uh, electricity and transportation. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, th- those are the ones that are the value drivers for yeah. industry. Those are yep. the ones that if they converted to another technology, if they moved – to something like that that you see up there, be a big hit. Game over for us. <laughs> because I don't know, man. the derivatives of petroleum, yeah. all the different things that, right. that we can derive from a petroleum source, they're add-ons to the overall demand. Right? It's sure. it's it becomes almost a niche market at that sure. point. Sure. Yeah. You know, and that niche market means that we can't have a diversity of companies anymore. Yeah. I mean because it goes, they yeah. no longer become viable. Because there's a very small demand for the product. Yeah, at that point. and and the days of creating uneconomic horizontal wells should probably be over here pretty yeah. soon. So you know, to me, this scares me, but then also at the same time, it excites me. Yeah, it keeps me coming into work because I say, what can I do to keep them off our back? That's right. What can I do to keep them at bay? It becomes a competition thing. That's right. right. And 100%. you know we're. <laughs> Let's Diamond, kick their ass, Diamondback man. Sent, yeah. <laughs> Diamondback sent some of the- uh, We're better than these guys. <laughs> better than these guys. Uh, Diamondback sent some some of our, our management team to a uh, uh, Army War College thing, and it was essentially this uh, uh, staff ride through the Gettysburg battlefield and talking about a lot of the things and a lot of learnings that the leaders had during the battle and stuff like that and like pitfalls and how it relates to the business. And uh, one of the things that came out of that, it's kind of a funny aside, is the fact that you know, there's certain strategies of appeasement, but then also annihilation. And I think Diamondback firmly sits in the annihilation phase. I mean, talking about where we need to go as an industry as a whole, and then now what's nipping at our heels. Because right. in the past, we never had this threat, right? right. It was, we had, like you said, the that battery-powered car that, you know, you it was more or less an RC car that, you know, you could stand on and go 10 miles in. Yeah. But now... There's a viable 
replacement for us. Right. Oh, yeah. So it's just a matter of can they scale it up? And I think, you know, honestly, they're doing everything they can to do so. Mm-hmm. So we, we need to be we need to be working toward innovation. In a, almost in a fearful sense. Yeah, yeah. Almost sense a, of urgency. Our, we almost, need a sense of urgency. We need a sense of urgency, and yeah. this is why. So it's it's studies like this. I, I found this study about no a month and a half ago, and I was just like, because <laughs> I, I was one of those guys too that said, oh, they won't survive without subsidies. Right. And it just opened my eyes. And I was like, oh, my God, wow. <laughs> this is really wow. bad. I had no idea they were that far along. Right, and because they're that far along, that really gives me a lot of drive, a lot of energy yeah. mm-hmm. to come in and, and talk about efficiency, but also at the same time talk about how we, as a subsurface community, as a geoscience community, can plug into that efficiency. What we can do to make our engineers do their work better. Yeah. Right, and that's what it all comes down to. Yeah, like you said, this isn't this is a multifaceted business. Oh, yeah. We. If we need to work together at the right. end of the day, and when right. we go down one rabbit hole more than the other, where, whether it's the business side of piecing investors, whether it's the engineering side doing efficiency, or whether it's, quote unquote, a science project with the geology side, it th- we need to come together and we yeah. need to make this problem not a problem. Right. You got to tie it all back to the rock, man. We got to tie it back to the rock. The rock's going to drive technology. The rock's going to drive the engineers. And Dave Cannon, we cannot thank you enough, man, for for coming on the show twice to to just exhaust your your mental and physical ability to become who you are and explain all those things and just rap with us and entertain our questions, man physical i'm sitting down <laughs> yeah uh, it's not physically demanding but you're what you've forcing done, me to stand or run or anything, so <laughs> what you've fun. done before your 40th birthday man it's very <laughs> impressive i think the industry is going to chomp on this i think i think we absolutely have a dave cannon the third show where we can go into even more technical things uh for now we're just going to start bringing on legends and leaders oh, from, yeah. the, from the local industry I'm looking forward and, to it man it's going to be entertaining uh your support means the world to us and and likewise for everybody else that's listening and being a part of this show and being a part of this journey man we're gonna make a difference we're gonna chase this thing down and we're gonna make a difference in this industry sure hope so that's what i'm here for gotta be a steward of our industry and on that note we're out diversified mud logging operating in challenging geological environments requires more geological data gathering real rock data in a low-cost environment is a challenge too Diversified Well Logging's hybrid mud logging delivers quantitative rock data in real time at competitive cost. Combined with mass spec gas data, gamma ray, and XRF geosteering, high resolution sampling with the automated remote mud logger, DWL surface measurement while drilling is bridging the gap between seismic and gamma ray logs. Contact us at info at dwl-usa.com or call Paul Burns at 432-528-1871. At ESG, we know that microseismic event clouds overestimate the stimulated reservoir volume. With FRACMAP Clarity, we're cutting through the clouds of microseismic data to differentiate between wet versus dry fractures, better understand the well interaction, and extract the information you need to make important decisions about your completions. Speak to us about validating your reservoir models with microseismic calibrated rate transient analysis. For more information, visit ESGSolutions.com. Can AmeriCoring is focused on making coring great again. 
Canamera revolutionized the coring industry forever with consistent high core quality and proven success all over the Permian Basin. From their slim hole world coring record in the Delaware to their 510 foot record run in the Midland Basin, Canamera's proven JMS jam mitigation system has consistently delivered high quality core, longer run lengths, and reduced operational costs. If you want long barrel, short barrel, wireline retrieved, oriented, or underbalanced coring, Discover Canamera Coring's technology, www.canameracoring.com, or find your local representative at sales at canameracoring.com. Sizeware is a different kind of geoscience technology company. Software isn't about a product. It's about an experience, and we want you to have a great experience with us. We design software for the upstream energy industry and work with our users to ensure we're addressing their real workflows and challenges. Our suite of products include seismic interpretation, geologic interpretation, and field development. Our affordable leasing model includes all upgrades, maintenance, and support from our exceptional team of geoscientists, because we don't think you should have to pay extra for that. It should be an expectation. For more information, visit our website at sizeware.com. That's S-E-I-S-W-A-R-E.com.